This episode of Deep Dive is sponsored by Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, a valuable advocate in Washington for farmers throughout the Midwest. We are the voice of milk in Congress, with customers, and within communities. Got milk? You've probably seen this iconic imagery at some point or another, whether you were flipping through a magazine or visiting a school cafeteria. A photo of a celebrity with a rim of dairy goodness along their upper lip and a glass of it in their hand. You've probably even recreated the imagery on your own, either unintentionally after a hearty sip, or, let's be honest, you knew what you were doing and you got a good laugh out of it. That advertising campaign is one of the most successful in recent American history. Since it was introduced in 1993, it's hard to imagine anyone in the country who hasn't seen it. Maybe it made them reach for a napkin. Maybe it made them reach for an extra half gallon. Either way, those two words invoke immediate recognition to countless people. Right now, the American dairy industry has got plenty of milk, and the struggle is what to do with all of it. Changing consumer behaviors means changing industry practices. A shift in their clout on Capitol Hill leaves dairy lobbyists to work to adapt to their new normal. Coupled together the recent wave of bankruptcies among producers and push to communicate and improve upon the sustainability efforts in the industry, and today's dairy sector is almost unrecognizable from the scenes and images of the past. I'm Spencer Chase. And I'm Ben Nully. We'll explore all that and more on this season of AgriPulse Deep Dive, starting with Episode 1, Boom and Bust. Today, there are roughly 9.5 million dairy cows in the U.S., producing nearly 220 million gallons of milk each year. According to USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service, the average dairy cow today produces over 23,000 pounds of milk. Compare that to 10 years ago, where the number was around 20,500. That is double the production of 1975 of just over 10,000 pounds and roughly five times higher than in 1950 when cows produced just 5,000 pounds per year. Milk production numbers have skyrocketed since the 70s. We'll talk about some of the driving factors in a moment. However, the number of dairy farms continues to drop. According to the 2012 Census of Agriculture, there were some 64,000 operations. Today, there are just 37,000. Compare that to 1975, where there were roughly 11.1 million cows on over 400,000 operations, producing a total of 115 pounds of milk a year. According to the USDA's Economic Research Service, most of those farms milked under 200 head. You didn't start to see an increase in farm herds above 200 head until the 1990s. So when was the golden era for dairy? University of Wisconsin dairy economist Mark Stevenson says like any sector in agriculture, there are good years and bad years. I caught up with Stevenson at World Dairy Expo in Madison, Wisconsin earlier this year. As far as... Hold up. If you've never been to World Dairy Expo, let me break it down. Folks from around the world descend on Madison, Wisconsin for a five-day show dolling up cows and parading them around an arena of judges. It's what you're hearing in the background now. It's like a beauty pageant, except with our four-hoofed friends, and if you don't think it's competitive, you're only kidding yourself. 
Cutting Edge T. Delilah made history October 2019 for the second year in a row, becoming the only Brown Swiss to ever claim back-to-back -back World Dairy Expo Supreme Champion titles. Yeah, they get pretty creative with the names, ones like Milk Source Thunder and De La Plain Bingo Stinger. You'll never go hungry of cheese curds, ice cream, and milk. Yeah, it's a lactose intolerance nightmare, but if you go, I highly recommend the grilled cheese tent. Okay, okay, back to the story. As far as just breaking down where the uh, economy for the dairy industry is right now, uh, how would you describe that and uh, kind of where it's going? Well, right now we've got a milk price that I would say um, we could feel like is fairly average, reasonable. Um, but, you know, this is to say that for most folks, you can probably have your nose above water if this was something that was typical. But we've been through five years of pretty relatively low milk prices, and uh, people's balance sheets have been badly damaged. Um, you know, trying to secure credit and loans, you know, for uh, just paying for the operating costs of a business. They need a little bit more than just average prices to help restore some of that. And just remind me, uh, what's, what's a good uh, milk price where a producer can sustain uh, an operation? You know, that's a question it sounds like I should be able to give you just something right down to a penny. But honestly, we see a broad range of cost of production across all farms every year. Um, it moves up and down from one year to the next as costs for production uh, change. But we see a big range between our lowest cost farms and our highest cost farms, which, by the way, is about the same for all farm sizes. I hear so many people just say, Boy, large farms, absolutely hands down, that's the low cost production. But our best small farms have as low a cost of production as our best large farms do. And talking about big versus small, uh, what are you seeing as far as the makeup there, uh, just in Wisconsin or across the nation in general? That's been a moving target for a long period of time. We peaked back in the 1930s in terms of dairy farm numbers, and we've been consolidating those ever since. We're producing way more milk than ever before, so our remaining farms are getting larger and just producing quite a lot more milk. That's going to continue. I don't see that any reason for that to just stop or even stabilize now. Stevenson says some of that just has to do with the technology we saw at Expo. Um, you can't look at some of these feed mixer wagons and say, I'm going to, you know, feed my 50 cow operation with that. It's, it's way too expensive. It's too much capital. The same thing was true for the bulk tank back in the 1950s. That was a defining technology. It meant that you had to become bigger to have that on your farm. And pretty soon you had to have that to ship grade A milk, you know. So some of these things just push us toward larger operations. He says you can't really pin down when there was a specific heyday for the dairy industry. <laughs> if there was yeah. one. Yeah, well, I... I don't know. I mean, we can be nostalgic about a period of time. I mean, I, I loved climbing in the hayloft, you know, and throwing the bales down. Um, but people are happy not to do that now. <laughs> um, so I, I don't think there is a golden era, if you will, for dairy. Um, it changes. Uh, these large dairy farms are wonderfully operated farms. These cows are comfortable on those large farms. They're getting a quality of feed that they've never gotten before. I mean, it's, it's great. So uh, I don't think you can look at that and say, oh gosh, that's bad. Um, 
By the same token, that's not going to be for everyone. We see successful business models of all types. Assistant Professor in Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Marin Bozic, agrees with Stevenson. He says it all depends on what kind of dairy farmer you How are. How efficient you are, the cost of production. Uh, certainly there are farmers today that are planning expansions, and some of them have expansions already planned out a few years ahead. They're bringing in next generation, etc. And other farmers that are finding the, uh, the, the, the prices that we had over the last few years to be uh, uh, too much or not, not enough. It also depends where your operation is located. If you're in California, you're facing ever-increasing regulatory burdens and also competing opportunities from the almond sector and pistachios and others. Third-generation California dairy farmer Steve Maddox knows all too well about the impacts of regulatory burdens. He runs a large diversified dairy operation near Riverdale. I've got uh, 3,900 cows milking and dry plus uh, 4,000 head of heifers, 1,200 head of of, uh, breeding bulls. Everything's 100% registered. If we're not the largest registered herd, maybe in in the United States we're we're close. And uh, we merchandise uh, genetic stock around the world. We have an embryo transfer lab. We sell embryos. We sell bull semen and and live cattle. On the environmental front, uh, has that been a challenge for you? Well, we we have a large land base, obviously, with what I've got. So we're able to spread the effluent and... You know, we, we do our soil testing, we, we do our water testing, effluent testing, all the above, petiole samples. And, and we, on our corn and our alfalfa, we don't have to, we're, we're able to grow those crops without any commercially purchased uh, fertilizer. But that's made us more efficient on that end. The excessive uh, reporting of air quality and the water quality is uh, a little tedious. We have three different air boards we have to report to in California. We have two water boards we have to issue with. Now our state's trying to control our groundwater, which we're the only state of the western 13 states that the state doesn't control the groundwater. And so we're in trying to be better stewards of that with water banking and the like. And so it's part of everyday thing. Dr. Bozic said also the economics are different in different states across the country. Contrast that South Dakota where people just can't get enough cows as, as they need for, for the cheese plants there. South Dakota has grown probably 25% over the last five years in the number of cows, and they hope to grow another 50%. So what is driving consolidation and smaller herds? So the, the, uh, what was driving the um, need for less cows in general, in aggregate, is indeed the case that uh, um, we are very, very good at improving the genetics of dairy cattle um, that are being used in production. So every new generation of cows produces about 1.2% more milk um, than the year before, um, than the generation year before. So so that's what was driving more milk, even if you have the same aggregate number of cows. Um, what, what, What has been driving consolidation, the exits of typically smaller farms and rise of typically larger farms, though you can be a very successful small farmer and you can be a terrible large farmer as well. It's, it's, a, um, it's not a universal rule, but more of a tendency, a trend, a propensity. What's been driving consolidation of small farms is that their cost of production typically is larger than a bigger operation where you can spread out fixed costs. Keep in mind this is a family business too, which means every 20 to 30 years roughly, There's a new generation that's contemplating 
whether they want to come back to the farm, move to the city, or take another supporting role in the agribusiness sector. If you have a small operation that um, perhaps you have not reinvested in um, over the last 10, 20 years, and, and so the, the barns are old, they need a lot of things needed fixing, uh, then may, your son or your daughter may say, well, you know, Dad, uh, appreciate everything you do, feeding the world, working hard, I love your ethic, but I don't see myself in this business on a farm like this going forward. And then it's that attrition uh, through, through the choices of the next generation that's also driving the consolidation. How do bankruptcies factor into all of this? So uh, the, the, the bankruptcy itself it typically is a reorganization. So you would do the bankruptcy, um, you would go through the process of bankruptcy if uh, you believe there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but you just need to reorganize uh, your debt and maybe have some of the uh, debts uh, forgiven so that, so that you can start fresh. Um, but uh, there is another way out, and that is just to sell everything. You sell your equipment, you sell your cows, your, uh, uh, you sell your you know, facilities if you can. According to a July 2019 analysis by the American Farm Bureau Federation, the number of Chapter 12 filings from June 2018 to June 2019 reached 535 filings, which is the highest level since the 2012's 582 filings. Chapter 12 filing is designed for family farmers with irregular annual income who are financially distressed to propose and execute and plan to pay all of their debts. Wisconsin, Kansas, and Minnesota led the nation in Chapter 12 filings. Bankruptcy filings in Kansas and Minnesota increased so sharply they reached some of the highest levels of the last 10 years, the AFBF report said. But, Bozic says you have to be cautious in how you interpret the bankruptcy numbers because the number of bankruptcies aren't the only indication for the current status of the ag sector. What we've seen the last few years that is different than previous crises uh, and we've, we've, we've had cyclically um, low dairy prices, you know, 2003, 2006, 2009, uh, 2012, we had good milk prices, but feed prices were high. So, so you know, some people would say that they come every three years. It's not as precise. It's not a mechanical clock, but, you know, there is some sort of periodicity to this. But Bozic says what is different about the most recent cycle or the last few years the industry cannot simply rely on those who wish to retire to balance the supply. See, in the past, when milk prices would be low, those who wished to expand operations would press the brakes and wait for people to retire and eventually see demand catch back up with supply again. Well, what we've seen the last few years is bankers actually had to tell a number of their farmers, uh, look, this is not going to work out. You know, we, we don't see a scenario where in the next five years you can be successful. And that's tough. That's really tough. We are not talking just about families that would have retired anyway in the next two or three years. We're talking about 35-year-olds, 40-year-olds that maybe have just started a family, uh, had a dream of owning their own farm, and now they have to uh, completely re-envision their life. Um, and, and that's tough. You know, and we've seen a number of such uh, uh, cases uh, in, in the last few years. Bozic noted, certainly these are challenging times for many producers, but also times where a number of them see opportunities in the next decade. Coming up, Spencer dives into some of those opportunities. Stay tuned.
AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, the voice of milk. Edge provides dairy farmers across the Midwest with a strong voice, the voice of milk, in Congress, with customers, and within communities. Edge is an energetic, forward-thinking organization that represents all dairy farmers equally, recognizing both their differences and similarities. As one of the top dairy cooperatives based on milk volume, Edge amplifies the voice of farmers. Now more than ever, dairy farmers need to be heard. Join us at voiceofmilk.com. Tucked away in a stack of maps accompanying USDA's 2017 Ag Census is one displaying the milk cow inventory for that year. It's black and white with state and county borders, but blue dots scattered across the landscape represent dairy cows, 2,000 head per dot. Working east to west, there's pockets of production in southern Pennsylvania and western New York, along with smatterings of dots in Ohio, Illinois, and Michigan before the dots get much more concentrated in eastern Wisconsin. The nearly solid color in the eastern part of the state gradually fades to nothing across the southern half of Minnesota and the eastern quarter of South Dakota. Aside from a few portions of increased density in West Texas, eastern New Mexico, northeastern Colorado, southern Idaho, and southwestern Arizona, the only other solid concentration cuts northwest to southeast through the center of California. A separate map shows change in inventory from the previous census, which was completed in 2012. That map shows significant increases and decreases in the dairy cattle herd across the country, but doesn't really quantify what it means by significant. Either way, many of the significant decreases happen in Southern California and Northern Minnesota. The significant increases are spread throughout the Western United States, but a collection of counties in Eastern South Dakota along the Minnesota border all show increases. That's not an accident. The change of inventory map in the 2012 census shows the same thing. It's part of a long-running effort in the Mount Rushmore state to attract more dairy production. Joe Flatta is a director in the South Dakota Governor's Office of Economic Development. Basically, it's his job to be a salesman for estates and court interested businesses looking to plant roots there. One thing he's always got in his back pocket, the state's tax structure. We are a state um, that uh, we are frugal, you know, first of all, and we try to leave as much of the dollar in the in the producer's pocket as we can. Uh, and we try to be super efficient. And people like that kind of approach, especially um uh, people with an ag background because they know the value of that dollar. Um, so that's important. And then our tax structure, of course, is important, especially at a corporate level. And so that's where we get into that conversation of, okay, does it make sense to keep some of your dairies in California, but have your headquarters in South Dakota because there's no corporate income tax and there's no um, individual income tax. But a business-friendly system of governance can only get you so far when you're trying to recruit an ag operation. At a certain point, they need land, and lots of it. Most of the dairy industry's growth in the state has been along the Interstate 29 corridor, a belt of highway on the eastern side of the state that's usually not too far from the Minnesota border. From an economic development perspective, Flata says it checks a lot of the necessary boxes, and local communities have taken notice. There's ample natural gas, there's ample electricity, of course, the interstate system on I-29, right, and then it connects with I-90. Uh, that's a key thing. Good railroad service. But then, you know, with the supply chain, there's a ready purchaser of the milk that's kind of lined up along that I-29 corridor. There are several large cheese producers 
that have located along I-29 or near I-29. And I think that plays a pretty big role in that. And then probably, and this is probably a key as well, is the permitting process. You know, getting permits uh, so that someone can start a dairy or expand a dairy. Those counties, many of them at least along I-29, have focused on uh, making it, uh, you know, as, as easy as possible to get a permit. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done, uh, but I think those counties, a number of them have tried to work through that and, and make it relatively simple. But bringing those producers and those cows to the area hasn't been without its challenges. Dairies need employees. Employees need housing. Housing needs to be built. Sometimes there's children to send to the local school system. And what about all that milk? There needs to be a good road to come pick it up, a licensed trucker to drive that reliable truck down the road to come get it, and that truck needs to go somewhere. Alan Merrill is a dairy farmer from Parker, South Dakota. He and his son run a dairy that milks 200 cows per day, continuing an operation that was started by Alan's parents. He's also the chairman of the Midwest Dairy Association. That's the dairy checkoff arm of 10 states stretching from North Dakota to Arkansas. By the way, Ben got to do a cool record scratch cutaway earlier, and to be honest with you, I want in on that. Yeah, that's the stuff. A quick Chekhov 101 for those who might not be familiar. Chekhov's work to fund research and promotion of agricultural commodities as well as build demand for products. Remember the Beef It's What's For Dinner commercials? That was a Chekhov project designed to advertise a commodity. Chekhov's are funded by producers themselves through an assessment on what they sell. In the case of the dairy industry, Producers pay an assessment of 15 cents per hundredweight of milk. For producers in the 10th state region covered by Midwest Dairy, 10 cents goes to them. Another five goes to Dairy Management Inc., the national arm of the checkoff. All right, back to the show. I talked with Alan about a major issue facing the dairy industry in his part of the country and, frankly, nationwide. Processing capacity. Using South Dakota as a case study, that expanded dairy production needed to go somewhere. That led to a look at the state's processing capacity and discussions about what should come next. And what came next was construction of additional facilities to handle all that milk. There's the $140 million facility in Brookings that started production in 2014. The $250 million expansion of a cheese plant in Lake Norton announced in 2018. And that's on top of other facilities already up and running in the state. But how do these kinds of decisions get made? How does a company know just where to put shovels in the ground? As Alan puts it, there's a number of factors. A community that's willing to have a processing plan of that nature, because um, it does change a few things. A state that, that's willing to recognize there's an investment happening here, um, will we benefit from this, because it does create jobs. Um, Midwest Dairy, uh, one reason Bell Brands chose uh, Brookings is because they had a, a very good college that we do a lot of research and innovation type work there that Midwest Dairy invests some money into research. So uh, I think you saw a value there. And, and that's some of the process. But it, it's having understanding of what the community will do to also allow the milk to be close to a processing plant. Uh, a lot of a lot of plants like to have their milk within 100 to 150 miles of there. It's stays local. You don't spend a lot of uh, transportation costs getting the product to the processor. And, uh, so that's what I see as a benefit of having the plants, especially on this east side of South Dakota. Uh, where, and that's why you see the growth in this area. Alan and other producers in the area are kind of lucky. 
He's a member of a co-op that is able to sell milk to a few different processing plants depending on market factors. But as the beef industry learned last year when a packing plant in Kansas caught fire, processing capacity is a fragile thing, and the dairy industry could ill afford to lose a plant. Most of the processing plants are probably running at uh, 95 to 98% capacity, which is a huge, huge part. Because years ago, uh, when I'm talking 25, 30 years ago, they probably ran 80 to 85%. So they always had room for extra milk whenever something had a hiccup in the system. I think today we don't have that much flexibility. You think of a, a large plant that's taking in 9 to 10 million pounds a day, um, where are you going to go with that milk if they have a breakdown or a fire or shutdown? Uh, it's very concerning. Uh, years ago, we could handle it. I don't know if we can today. I mean, I'm sure that we can maybe cover maybe half of it, but uh, it is a concern. All of this, all of the recruitment and all of the growth, all of the processing and all the product differentiation, every new facility and every dollar invested is done up against one simple fact. People aren't drinking milk like they used to. The Department of Agriculture tracks dairy consumption across a whole host of categories. Milk, butter, cheese, yogurt. Pretty much any dairy product you can put in your grocery cart is somehow measured. The numbers are displayed on a per capita basis in pounds and date back to 1975 and run through 2018, the most recent year with complete records. For fluid milk, the 1975 measurement showed 247 pounds of annual per capita consumption. By the time 2018 rolls around, that dropped all the way to 146. That's a drop of more than 40%, a few bowls of cereal over losing a whole hundred pounds of consumption per person. But it's not necessarily time to cry over spilled milk. Totaling up everything, all the milk, butter, cheese, yogurt, ice cream, whey powder, all of it, shows overall consumption is up from 539 pounds of milk equivalent consumption in 1975, all the way up to 646 in 2018. Keep in mind, that increase of 107 pounds of total consumption comes at the same time there was a 101 pound drop in fluid milk consumption. People are still getting their dairy, just not like they used to. We are eating our dairy. We're eating it in cheese, we're eating it in yogurt, uh, we're getting it in butter, we're getting it in uh, protein added to uh, sports drinks and to nutritional bars. So we're, we're consuming our dairy in different ways. Uh, you know cereal consumptions off the, the 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 way Americans are having meals at home breakfast and a bowl of cereal we aren't doing that anymore and we use the term here uh, Spencer that milk kind of came along for the ride with a bowl of cereal well if there's no bowl of cereal there's no place for milk to ride along with that's Michael Dykes the president and CEO of the International Dairy Foods Association among its members are about 90 percent of the fluid milk processing capacity in the country long story short if you have a dairy product in your fridge or freezer, there's a good chance an IDFA member had something to do with it. I talked with Michael recently in his Washington, D.C. office. I asked him, if fluid milk is no longer as popular as it once was, what does that mean for his members? If we're eating more of our dairy rather than drinking as we traditionally have, and as you yeah. point out, that requires an extra step or two in the process to turn, to turn that milk from the cow into cheese, into butter, into yogurt. How does that shape industry behavior? Well, it, it, it says that uh, the folks who are running our, our IDFA members who are doing all the processing, uh, uh, they have to be thinking about what types of plants they need, what types of equipment they need. Uh, they have to have access to capital to be able to make those changes. 
uh, modify plants, build new plants, expand plants. Uh, those are all part of the planning horizon and being uh, having the market intelligence to anticipate where the market's going to go and be prepared to meet that need once it gets there. That's a delicate balance. Overestimate the customer's demand for product A and suddenly you're caught flat-footed when customers want more of product B. Anyone that's been in the dairy business or any sector of agriculture, heck any sector of business, can probably tell countless stories of swinging and missing on just what customers were looking for. But customers are the ones with the purchasing power. And as Dykes puts it, that dynamic isn't going anywhere. We're going to see more change in the next five years in the U.S. dairy industry than we've seen in the last 15. Uh, I'm a kid that grew up on a dairy farm milking cows when I was five years old. Uh, I've been a dairy veterinarian. I still own farms today. I was just on farms during the holiday with my brothers with beef cows. Uh, agriculture is changing, and we've got to accept that, that it's changing. Uh, and we've got to accept that the consumer is our boss, that the consumer is changing. Uh, and we've got to meet the needs of the consumer. Uh, whether we like that or not, it's just a fact of life. They're changing. My conversation with Michael had interesting timing. It took place on the same day Borden Dairy in Dallas announced its Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing becoming the second processor to do so in three months after Dean Foods initiated similar proceedings in November. But as Ben told us, they're far from alone, and they're far from the only segment of the industry facing some challenging times. So what can be done about that? How can the industry adapt to changing consumer preferences? And what does Capitol Hill have to do with it? We'll explore that and more as we look at the policies and politics of the dairy industry next week on AgriPulse Deep Dive.